in the program of many uh, contemporary churches, and perhaps uh, soon in ours, this portion of the service into which we now embark is called the message. Historically, we've referred to this time as the sermon. But increasingly, it's referred to as the message because our generation doesn't like anyone to preach to them. Don't pass judgment on me. That's not a new thing. This reluctance to, or disapproval of judgment, somebody preaching to us, has its roots in an ancient Eastern garden. When a couple named Adam and Eve said, I don't want anybody telling me what I can and can't do. And they rebelled and the rest is history. So it's not a new thing, but certainly we don't like the feeling of being preached at or being judged. Aren't we glad then that when Jesus in his foundational statement in the um, Sermon on the Mount came to the whole question of judgment, he put it clearly, simply, and succinctly, don't judge. Judge not, he said, lest you also be judged. Because our master said, don't judge, judge not, we, we struggle with this whole concept and we're reluctant to step into that arena. Because we know the moment we began to judge someone, to criticize someone, that taking this attitude of condemnation, that we are beginning the work of reciprocity. The principle of reciprocity goes all the way through the scripture. Uh, give and it shall be given unto you. Forgive and you'll be forgiven. Condemn and you'll be condemned. So once you enter into this business of condemning, the reciprocity principle comes at you. I recall my spiritual mentor, George Mayo, saying to me on one of our early morning walks, as I was really giving somebody down the country, George Mayo, about 25 years older than I, said, don't you think you're being a little bit hard on him? And as I think about it now, 20, 30 years later, I realized he wasn't talking about just being hard on the person I was judging. He was talking about being hard on this person because Jesus clearly says the judgment you get, you give is going to be the judgment you get. The measure you give will be the measure given back unto you. Reciprocity, we, we shrink from judgment because we don't want the same kind of strict judgment coming back at us. I think about when I was a boy, about the age of 11 or 12, I went down to the stable one day to saddle my horse to go for a ride. I had a wonderful horse, a Tennessee walker. Only problem with this horse is he'd bite you. Right when you were most unexpecting it, he'd just take a lump out of you. And this was one of those days. I was putting a saddle on him, and he just turned around and bit me. And it, it was one of those days for me, and I, I just lost it. When he bit me, I grabbed him by the ears, I took hold of his head, and I sank my teeth in his soft, velvety nose. <laughs> and I bit that horse till he cried. When I finally turned him loose, he stood over in a corner of the lot, 
and snorted and looked at me with wide, unbelieving eyes. I had actually bitten him back. And for the rest of the years, I had that horse. I could feed him sugar. I could brush his teeth if I wanted to. He never bit me again. <laughs> he experienced this reciprocity that when you bite, you get bitten back. And the, the, the principle is certainly at work when it comes to judging another person. Or as one translator says it, when you say something about another in hopeless finality, when you say something about a brother or sister with hopeless finality, you are skating on thin ice indeed. Now there's another reason why we shrink from judging, and our Lord explains it here. We shrink from judgment because generally when we judge someone, we are also blind to our own failures at that point. So judgment is repugnant to us because we're blind to our own failures. So that makes it absurd. I mean, Jesus said, why do you notice the speck that's in your brother or sister's eye and you can't see the log or the rafter that's in your own eye? Obviously, he drew that image out of the carpenter shop when many times he had gotten a little something in his eye and he thought about uh, this ridiculous image of somebody with a two by four in his or her eye seeing a speck in somebody else's eye. Now notice something about this scripture. Jesus calls this person a hypocrite. The hypocrite's failure is not in diagnosis. We're wonderful diagnosticians. Have you ever noticed that? We can tell each other exactly what's wrong. I mean, we are great with our diagnosis. And this hypocrite was right on the money with his diagnosis. As best we can tell, this person did have, that brother did have a beam in his eye. I mean, a speck. There was something in that sister's eye. So this hypocrite delighted in his diagnosis. His failure was not in his diagnosis. His failure was he refused to turn that meticulous quality of criticism onto himself. And that's when it gets really absurd. So we are reluctant to judge because the Bible says all have sinned. None of us is righteous. All have fallen short. None is righteous. No, not one. Therefore, it isn't surprising that in recent times, we have evidence that we're taking this verse of Scripture very seriously. Don't judge. Judge not. Because in the words of an international preacher, this has now become the favorite verse in the United States of America. There was a time, clearly, when John 3:16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that that was our favorite verse. But now it's Matthew 7, verse 1, judge not lest you also be judged. And when I heard that preacher say that, I started thinking about my experience, and I had to agree with him that the words I hear most often are, don't judge, I don't want to set myself up as a judge over anybody, I don't want to pass judgment, don't be judgmental, and I realized that this person was exactly right. That's our new verse, that's our most popular verse. It isn't surprising then that our number one virtue in this country is tolerance. Tolerance 
is our number one virtue in America. It is the one virtue upon which practically everybody can agree. And why shouldn't we? I mean, there was a time in our history when love was the principal virtue. But love had to go by the board because love can be tough. Love can require something of us and something of us in relationship to our neighbor, whereas tolerance does not. I mean, love can be tough. I think about going home that day at lunch. My wife was teaching school and saw that our, little, our youngest daughter, about three years of age, was, was dehydrated. She had been suffering from a virus. I, I rushed her over to the pediatrician. He said, your diagnosis is correct. Said she's dangerously dehydrated. We've got to get some fluid into her right now. Well, Kathy didn't want any part of that fluid. It had to be put into both legs at the same time and was given so rapidly that her legs swelled up, something horrible. It was very uncomfortable. There was no nurse to stay there for the hours it would require all those bottles of fluid. Instead, Daddy had to hold her on the table. I laid my body across her body and held her, looking into her eyes as she cried and I cried and she screamed and she kicked and I held her there while all that fluid went into her little body. But I want to tell you, I'd do more than that to save my baby. I'd lie on that table. I'd take it far. I'd, I would, lo love is like that. Love will pay the price for the one who is loved. So love can't be that virtue because if love is our dominant virtue, when we see people marching off the map, and walking right into the jaws of hell, we won't let that happen without saying something. We won't let that happen without reaching out to them. So love is no longer the dominant virtue because love can be tough and requires something of us in conjunction with our neighbor. There was a time in our culture when we heard a lot about justice. In the speeches of Martin Luther King Jr., justice appeared in practically every paragraph. But you don't hear as much about justice as you do about tolerance because justice requires a, a, a standard by which everything else is measured. And if you have a standard which measures everything else, that mean, you, means you're hierarchical. You have something that is placed above something else. And if you place anything above the common denominator of the culture, then you're a bigot. You see, the whole meaning of tolerance has changed. When I was growing up, tolerance meant you respected other people and their right to their opinion. That meant that you accepted that person even though their behavior was unacceptable. Now that shift in the meaning of tolerance has changed from negative tolerance to positive tolerance. Now our culture expects us to accept a person and to applaud the person's behavior. That's the difference between negative and positive tolerance. We grew up saying you love the sinner and you hate the sin. Positive tolerance says you accept the sinner and you accept the sin. If you presume to know more or have a higher standard, then you're hierarchical and you're a bigot. So the worst word in our culture 
When I was a boy, the worst thing you could say to somebody was to say that their mother was a female dog. But that's not the worst thing you can say to somebody in our culture. The worst thing you can say to somebody in our culture is that you're an intolerant bigot. That is a subtle shift that we have seen in the whole meaning of a word. And it's dispersed throughout our culture. Let me say a little word about the subtlety of it all. The other day, at uh, other evening, at Bob Onstead's uh, retirement party, one of the founders of Randall's, uh, Bob asked me if I'd come and have the prayer. And I was very pleased to do that because he's, he's one of our television members. But uh, I, as I was in that uh, group, I was listening to his comments. And, and Bob is a very devout churchman. And he was saying when they first opened Randall's, they didn't permit any alcoholic beverages in the store. And, and people wrote him letters saying, we appreciate your position. We appreciate your stand on this. This is wonderful what you're doing. However, in recent years, he said, he started getting different kinds of letters. And those letters said, who are you to pass judgment on us? What makes you think you're so much better than we are? That's the kind of pressure he started to get today. Now, do you see the difference? The difference is that in the beginning, he had his position and accorded other people the right to their position. But now those same people say, you don't have a right to put your position over against ours. You have to accept our position with an unqualified yes. We do that over and over and over again in this culture. You cannot go to college and study comparative religions as you once did. Because to talk about comparative religions means you have a standard by which all other religions are measured. You can't do that now. Because to do that means you're hierarchical. And in the meaning of tolerance that we are now operating under, all truth claims are the same, all values have equal validity, and if anybody says otherwise, you are a bigot. So we Christians in our culture find ourselves on the horns of a dilemma. We are in a dilemma because we have the most hierarchical religion the world has ever known. We have pledged our lives to a lowly master who is said without a trace of a tremble in his voice, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Now, if Jesus walked the earth today and, and stood on the public square and made that statement, he would be branded the worst kind of bigot the world has ever seen. That's the dilemma in which we find ourselves and in which we have to do, conduct our business in our culture. Why this deep reluctance to judge? I've talked about several reasons already. Chesterton said that tolerance, tolerance is the virtue of a person with no convictions. A person with no convictions can be inclusive about every belief under the sun and can be accepting of every one of them. One of the reasons why we find ourselves in that position is because we are unsure of our foundation. We aren't real clear that we're standing on the rock. We aren't real certain that we know the right position, 
And so we're reluctant to enter into this arena where we see this battle being waged. We're just reluctant about it. We've been intimidated by the Jesus Seminar and by those persons who, if you speak up publicly, immediately brand you religious right and brush you off. We have been intimidated by the Jesus Seminar that has made us believe the Bible is no longer reliable as our objective standard for faith and practice. How do they do that? They'll say, how can you believe the Bible when the Bible supports slavery? Does not support slavery. Read the Bible, not just a few verses, read its entirety and think. Ask yourself this, how is it that the last thing in the world an owner of slaves wanted prior to the Civil War was for one of his slaves to learn to read? And the last thing he wanted that slave to read was the Bible. Anywhere in the world, people have gotten hold of this book. They have immediately discarded slavery. Anywhere this book has been lifted up, people have refused to be subjected to slavery because in it, we find the seeds of our freedom. We discover who we are as a child of God. We all have one master and only one, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. That is not true. Secondly, they say, how can you believe the Bible when it makes women second-class citizens? Oh, there's those who really rage at that. We United Methodists believe in radical equality between the sexes. Where do we come off with that? There was a time in the history of Israel when they were more open to women. Did you know, for instance, surely you knew that there was a time when a woman judged the whole nation of Israel and it was one of their highest moments. They all looked to Deborah as the judge of all of Israel. Did you also know that there was a time when a queen ruled the nation of Israel? Did you also know that Jim Fleming says that in, during the New Testament church, women prophesied, preached, and taught in the church? And we all know that Jesus chose Mary, a woman, to be the first preacher of the resurrection. So you cannot accuse the Bible of sexism. You cannot say the Bible supports slavery. And, you, and surely we know the difference when people say, who are you to impose your beliefs on me? People like that need to run, not walk. They need to run to Sunday school to discover the difference between claiming your faith and imposing your faith on an unwilling recipient. Surely we're intelligent enough to understand the difference between those. Sometimes I think we're like that man who chose to read his Bible like this. He would just take his Bible and then just shut his eyes and let it fall open and put his finger on a place. And he did that one day and it said Judas went out and hanged himself. That really upset him. He just pretended not to see that. He shut it again. He closed his eyes, opened it, and put his finger on another place. And it read, go and do thou likewise. <laughs> There is a way, and we offer it in this church, and we preach it from this, from this pulpit. We preach it the, an intelligent understanding of the Bible as our objective standard for life and for faith.
Now, without that standard, we lose our ability to discriminate. We lose our ability to decide what is right and what is wrong. Unless we have that common consensus that comes from an objective standard, we're like a ship without a rudder. We lose that. We're like that woman who had a new pastor. And after six months of listening to him, she went to tell him how wonderful he was. And she said, listen, before you came, I hated, I hated God. I hated the devil. I hated sin. But now after listening to you, I love all three. <laughs> I mean, we just lump all this stuff together. And, and, and we don't have to take any position. We don't have to assume anything because we're unsure of our position. Many of us have, have read this, this, this verse in Matthew, the most popular verse, and we've said, that's it, judge not. But we haven't considered the qualifier. Verse 6 is the qualifier. What does verse 6 say? Verse 6 says, don't you give what is holy to the dogs, and don't you cast your pearls before swine. Well, for heaven's sakes, what's piggish? And what's doggish? And what's a precious pearl? We're talking about moral judgments here, aren't we? That's the qualifier. And then Jesus didn't stop there. He goes right on to say, and you got to decide who's a false prophet and who's a true prophet. And the real true prophet is known by the fruit of his life. And you've got to make moral judgments. The Bible calls us to make moral judgments from the beginning of the Bible all the way through the end. Judge not. But you better be discriminating. You better be discerning. And you've got to make moral judgments every day of your life. And if society ever persuades you to be silent, then that means society has no values and no morals because the people of God have shut up and they aren't saying anything. We have such a push in our society toward the privatization of our beliefs. Stephen Carter wrote a book about it, The Culture of Disbelief. It's the push to be quiet. Doesn't matter what you believe, don't tell anybody about it. Don't tell them if it conflicts with your standards. Don't tell them if it's against your values. I just got back from North Korea. The communists say you can go to church if you won't tell anybody what you believe. If you won't share your standards and your convictions, you can go to church all you want to. We need to own our faith. We need to own it publicly. I think about L.M. Clymer. Clymer was the president and CEO of Holiday Inns. Holiday Inns board met and decided that where gambling was permitted, they were going to have it in their Holiday Inns. Clymer says, that's against my principles. They said, what are you talking about? They gave him all the temptations. They said, listen, man, in this world, you got to go along to get along. In this world, everything's relative. You can just set that aside. You can go to church on Sunday. You can set that aside. There's a lot of money in this. Clymer resigned. Clymer said, following the will of my God is the most important thing in my life, and I will not set aside my principles. Ho! Oh, if all the corporate heads in all America could verbalize principles like that, what a difference it'd make in our culture. I have a friend of mine whose uncle gave him a parable during the Depression. 
His uncle told him about a poor man who didn't have anything but a hog and a sheep and barely any groceries. When he started into town, he hooked up the hog and the sheep to a little cart so they could bring his salt and his flour back for him. On the way into town, he said that hog, a lot stronger than the sheep, would just pull him, pull that sheep into every mud puddle. Just horribly disfigured that sheep. The man thought about it. He said, it's because the hog's too strong. So he decided from then on, he was going to pour the feed to the sheep. And then he was going to starve the hog. And then that uncle took his nephew up real close and he said, listen, you have a sheep in you and you have a hog in you. You better learn how to feed the sheep and starve the hog. Brothers and sisters, that calls for discernment and that calls for discrimination. Do not throw what is holy to the dogs. Amen. <clears throat> Thank you. Our hymn of commitment is Lead On, O King Eternal. If there's someone today who wants to affirm that Jesus Christ is Lord and you're going to do his will publicly and privately, all the spheres of your life, I invite you to come and make it public by coming forward and giving me your hand. Maybe you're already a Christian, but God is nudging you to come and be a part of our fellowship here. We'd love to receive you as we stand to sing. Let us stand.
have a wonderful group of people here today that have come to join the First Church family. I would like to introduce Miss Joan Morris, and over here I want to introduce John and Lillian Meyer and their two children, Wilson and Catherine. We're really glad to have you here today. And, and the Myers are coming back home, so we welcome you back to this First Church family, and we welcome you, Joe. There's never been a time when um, 